0: God give us ears to ears word. What does the word Christmas mean to you? When you hear the word Christmas, what images, what memories, what smells, uh, what maybe movie associations come to mind? It's interesting that while Christmas is by far the most widely celebrated holiday on the planet, there's enormous confusion about what we're actually celebrating. I mean, if you just imagine a bunch of aliens came here from outer space and observed what we do at Christmas time, they would be totally confused. They'd see a reindeer, they'd see Frosty the Snowman, they'd see this fat man in a red suit. They, I mean, all this weird stuff, and, and trying to put it all together, it's incredibly confusing. I want to share with you some answers to this question: What does Christmas mean to you? These were all taken at random from people they just walked up to on the street and interviewed them. But one young 20-something woman said this when asked, what does Christmas mean to you? Boring. A young man from England said this, I love everything about Christmas, shopping and spending sprees. Here's what a teenage girl said. She said, Christmas means to me a star, a Christmas tree, and playing Mariah Carey. And maybe most sad of all, because this individual probably picked this up from being in the culture, a young immigrant from the Middle East said this, What does Christmas mean to you? The toys with the figure of Santa Claus. We also buy chocolate with the figure of Santa Claus. Now I'm afraid that those answers would probably be pretty typical of what most people in America today think of when they think of Christmas. It's this weird conglomeration of Santa and Frosty and elves and chocolate and Mariah Carey and lame Christmas movies on the Hallmark Channel. I hope that didn't offend anybody, but Let's be honest, I mean, they're they're not the greatest movies that the world's ever seen. So what is Christmas really all about? Why have Christians celebrated this event for thousands of years? If you celebrate Christmas, and statistically speaking, you probably do, since the majority of Americans do, including atheists, why do you celebrate it? Maybe better put, why should somebody celebrate Christmas? Well, to answer these questions, we're going to be turning in our Advent series to God's Word and looking at what the scriptures teach us about the first Christmas. Today, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 11. And in this chapter, we're going to see the way in which an ancient hope, an ancient longing was fulfilled on that first Christmas morning. This is what Christmas is really all about. This is what we ought to be celebrating, and my hope is that by going back to the source, back to God's Word, God's Spirit can use that to clear out so much of the cultural garbage and debris that has accumulated around Christmas. Well, it's with this, like I said, that we introduce our annual series of Advent sermons. Like we do every year, we're taking a break in our consecutive study through books of the Bible to consider four different passages pertaining to Jesus' first coming. This week and next week, we're going to study Old Testament prophecies about Jesus' birth. As I'm sure you know, the Old Testament prophesied hundreds of times that a Messiah would be born. And today we're going to look at Isaiah 11 and, Lord willing, next week, I haven't yet totally decided, but it's going to be another one of these Old Testament prophecies. And we're going to see the way in which God promises this Messiah specifically to save his people from their sins. Then after that, three weeks from today, we're going to look at New Testament passages. We're going to see the way in which that little baby born in Bethlehem is Christ the Lord, our Savior. God sent him specifically to redeem us from our sins. That's just a sneak peek of where we're going to be going in the next few weeks here. I'd encourage you to be here for these sermons, be praying for these sermons, and you might even consider a friend, a family member to invite to come along with you. Well, like I said, today we're going to jump into an Old Testament prophecy of Jesus' birth here in Isaiah. But before we do that, I want to give you a couple of guidelines for interpreting Old Testament prophecies. Uh, If you know anything about Christianity, Old Testament prophecies can be very much abused and misapplied, including ones pertaining to Jesus' birth. So I want to give you a couple of quick tips for interpreting Old Testament messianic prophecies. In a a minute here, we'll apply these to Isaiah 11. um, But before we do that, let let me go over them with you. Tip number one, remember the snowballing messianic hope building from previous scripture. I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. But whenever you're looking at a messianic prophecy, remember the snowballing messianic hope building from previous scripture. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, to make sense of this, what we've got to remember is that in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. He made Adam and Eve, and he put them in the Garden of Eden, and everything was going along well until they ate from that forbidden fruit. You'll remember this. They sinned, they disobeyed God, they ate the forbidden fruit, and they plunged all of humanity and really all of creation into sin and death. And yet immediately after their sin, God started promising grace. I find this so interesting. They they didn't have to wait hundreds of years, but immediately after they messed everything up, here we go, promises of grace. And these promises all begin coming together around this individual that we're gonna call the Messiah. We talk about Genesis 3.15 a lot around here, but remember what the Lord said to Satan. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, He, ultimately talking about the Messiah, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, that hope revealed to Adam and Eve immediately after their sin, that hope grows, it increases in clarity, increases in specificity, as you go all the way throughout the Old Testament. That's how you should read the Old Testament. It's primarily a book that's hoping for, longing for the Messiah. Now, there are literally hundreds of these prophecies. I can't go over all of them now, but let me just give you a couple uh, around Isaiah 11 here. This Looking at these might require you to flip a couple of pages back and forth. But for example, in Isaiah 7.13, Isaiah 7.13, God's word says this, "'Hear then, O house of David, "'is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? "'Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. "'Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, "'and you shall call his name Emmanuel. If you know the New Testament, you know that that prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus' birth when he was born to the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem. If you jump forward a couple of pages to Isaiah 9.6, there's another prophecy of the Messiah. Isaiah 9.6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end, On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know that that was fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. There are literally hundreds of such Old Testament promises of the Messiah. And this was the constant hope of the Old Testament believer God is going to send me this Savior, this Messiah, who's going to rescue me from all of the curses and consequences of sin. Let me give you just a sort of a suggestion here. This applies especially during Christmas time. If you want a decent summary of the Old Testament messianic hope, what I actually encourage people to do is to listen to Handel's Messiah a couple of times. Uh, It's every you know it's for sale. You can get it for free on uh, those music places. Uh, But listen to Handel's Messiah. I think it does an excellent job, sort of calling all these different Old Testament passages and putting them into beautiful song form. And it'll give you an idea of how thoroughly Old Testament, how thoroughly messianic the Old Testament is. That's the first principle for interpreting Old Testament Messianic prophecies. Remember their snowballing effect. The second one is this. Look for Messianic commercial breaks in prophecies of judgment. Again, I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. But look for Messianic commercial breaks in prophecies of judgment. Now, if you know how the Bible works, you've got the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible written to the Jews that are coming out of Egypt. Part of that was the promise that if they obeyed God in the promised land, they'd thrive, they'd prosper, things would go well, uh, if they obeyed. The promise was, as you go forward in the history of Israel, they didn't obey very well. I mean, certainly things went decent under King David, but when you get later on in Scripture, they were thoroughgoing idolaters. So what God does is he sends prophets to Israel to condemn them for their sins, to rebuke them for their sins. They're basically like prosecuting attorneys, pointing out all the ways in which they disobeyed God's law. Uh, See, if you look at somebody like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you've got 12 different minor prophets. They're largely critical, largely condemnatory. You guys have broken God's laws. God promised you'd flourish if you obeyed, but you broke God's laws, and because of that, judgment is coming. That's how a lot of the prophets are, including the prophet Isaiah. I know a lot of people love Isaiah, and rightly so, but if you read Isaiah from cover to cover, there's a lot of judgment and wrath in it. Just to give you one example of this, if you want to flip over to Isaiah 1, This is what the Lord is saying to Israel Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they are utterly estranged. Now an awful lot of Isaiah is like that, not the entire thing, but an awful lot of Isaiah is like that. You are sinners, you're in trouble, you're idolaters, and wrath is coming. Having said that, there's also this fascinating pattern that oftentimes right around the corner after a very harsh prophecy of judgment is a promise of the Messiah. This happens time and time and time again. Uh, Judgment is coming, commercial break, the Messiah is coming. I'd actually encourage you to kind of train yourself to read the prophets this way. When it's all dark and gloomy and and judgment is coming, uh, anticipate. There's probably a promise of the Messiah somewhere around here. I think this tells us something about the nature of our God, that uh, even when things look dark and scary and gloomy, there is grace intermingled in there for those who have eyes to see. So as we study Isaiah 11, keep these two principles in mind: the snowballing messianic hope, building from previous scripture, and also this idea that sort of embedded within prophecies of judgment are promises of the Messiah. Well, with all that sort of preparatory work in mind, let's now dig into Isaiah 11. And the first thing I'd like you to consider with me from this passage is the coming King's ancestry. So verse one is talking about the coming King, the coming Messiah's ancestry, sort of his lineage. Verse one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now pause there. Many interesting things I want to point out to you. First, you'll notice that the verbs here are in the future tense. It says, There shall come forth a shoot, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. We think Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah around 700 B.C., and yet clearly here he's looking forward to an event that's yet to take place. Something's going to happen when this takes place. It's future tense. Something else to ta- pay attention to, look at that term branch. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, this is particularly important because in the Old Testament, this was almost a nickname for the Messiah. I know it sounds like kind of an odd name, the branch, but it is nonetheless a, sort of another name for the Messiah. Listen to Jeremiah 23.5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will ra- raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. So this passage is clearly talking about a future day when the Messiah will arise. Now, notice then the metaphor that he uses for the arising of the Messiah. He says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, you know who Jesse is? Who was Jesse? Jesse was King David's dad. Uh, there's obviously David, the king, that you all know about, but then his dad was named Jesse. Now, why is this important? This is connecting Jesus to the promises made to David. We actually talked about this, interestingly, in Sunday school. We didn't, Jay and I didn't coordinate this, but it is fascinating the way that the Lord often coordinates such things. Uh, God made many precious promises to David, including that one of his great-great-great-great-grandchildren would be the king of the entire universe forever. Listen to 2 Samuel 7.12. To King David, God promises this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So pulling some of these threads together, a future promise of the coming Messiah descended from David, but look at the metaphor that's used. It says, A shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, this is actually very, very important. Tune in here. You ever had in your backyard like this old tree stump that you thought was dead, but then all of a sudden this little sprig shoots out the side and starts growing and turning into a tree? You ever had that before? I've had that before. It's actually kind of annoying because you wish you had killed the tree, but you haven't killed the tree. But that's the metaphor used here. The idea is that at this particular time, when the Messiah comes, the house of David would be just a dead stump. People would look at it and think there's no life in it, that it's passed over. But all of a sudden, surprisingly, this branch is going to shoot out and flourish. Now, this is interesting because at this particular time when Isaiah wrote, Isaiah, what are we, in 11? Um The house of David was doing well. The house of David was flourishing. David's great-great-grandson Ahaz was on the throne, and yet this metaphor seems to envision a time when the house of David is nothing more than a dead stump. People would look at it and think there's nothing there. For those of us who have eyes to see, this is clearly fulfilled in the birth of Jesus our Lord. When Jesus was born, the Davidic dynasty had fallen on really hard times. I mean, read the early chapters of Matthew and Luke. Uh, There was no Davidic king sitting on the throne. Israel was ruled by the Roman Empire, you remember this? And people would look at the the Davidic promises as just a dead old stump. But then when things seemed utterly hopeless, what do we read? Luke 2.1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the house of, pardon me, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was from the house and lineage of David. Jesus is this branch suddenly shooting out from the dead stump of the house of David. He is that heir of David whom God sent when things looked utterly hopeless. And somehow Isaiah knew all about this 700 years previously and when the house of David looked to be thriving and doing well. Now, I think one of the applications we can draw from all of this is just how incredibly trustworthy the Bible is. Are you getting that? See how incredibly trustworthy the Bible is? I mean, there's no way the Bible could predict these sort of precise details, especially 700 years in advance, if it were not the living, inspired Word of God. The Bible is a book you can trust. You can fully trust it, especially in our day and age. When you look at politics, and it just looks absolutely nuts. I heard another preacher describe it this way. If we got a bunch of insane monkeys running things, they'd probably do a better job. And I could kind of sympathize with that. When society appears to be imploding, when environmentalists are predicting the end of the world, when the papers are predicting the end of Christianity, don't despair, don't get anxious. The Bible is a book you can trust. Jesus will come again. The gates of hell will not prevail over the church. God will continue to work all things after the counsel of his own will. Brothers and sisters, let us trust the Bible. Quickly, moving on, let's consider next the coming king's endowments. What abilities, what gifts will the Messiah have? We have this in verses 2 through 3a, the coming king's endowments. In verse 2, Isaiah writes, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Pause there. Now in the Bible, when the Spirit of the Lord came upon somebody, it was almost universally to empower them to do great feats. We talked about this in our recent series on the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of the Lord came upon, say, Samson? It enabled him to just rip people apart with his bare hands. When the Spirit of the Lord came upon David, it gave him great wisdom for ruling. In the book of Acts, when the Spirit of the Lord came upon the disciples, that enabled them to become witnesses to the ends of the earth. And clearly here, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon the Messiah. Evidently, the Spirit will empower him, will enable him to do unique things, things that ordinary humans can't do. Now, thinking about how this pertains to the life of Jesus, we know that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. You remember that? Luke 2? How is it that the Virgin Mary was able to conceive a child? The Holy Spirit came upon her. More than that, what happened at Jesus' baptism? The Holy Spirit descended like a dove and rested upon Jesus, and then Jesus heard those words from his Father, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And all throughout Jesus' life and ministry, the Holy Spirit empowered him to do great and mighty works. This is why Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 28, If it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, I'll admit that this is a bit difficult to comprehend, since we believe that Jesus is fully God. I mean, the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is fully God, totally equal with the Father, equal with the Spirit. If that's the case, why then did he need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? Has that question ever bothered you? All we need to remember is that whenever we think about such questions, Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. Fully, truly God. Always with the Father, always with the Spirit, never had a beginning. But his humanity did have a beginning. He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And his humanity is a real, sincere humanity like yours and mine, just without sin. And in his humanity, he needed the Spirit to obey God, to do all that God had called him to do. And to enable Jesus in his humanity to fully do the will of God, the Holy Spirit came upon him. I recognize this is mysterious, and I admit myself, not, to, not fully comprehending how it all works. You know, How is it that Jesus can walk on water, but at the same time needs to take a nap in the boat? Well, maybe we need to wait till we get to heaven to really sort out the finer details of how Jesus' two natures come together, but this is what the Bible teaches. Something else quick, quickly I want you to notice in these verses is an allusion to the Trinity, a quick allusion to the Trinity. First, you've got the branch, like we've established, is God the Son. Then you've got the Lord, who in context is the Father, but then you've got the Spirit of the Lord, who is the Holy Spirit. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which we know from later scripture is really nothing more than the Trinity. I'd encourage you again to start noticing that everywhere. If you can start picking up allusions to the Trinity, they're all over the Bible. And again, you'll start seeing the entire Bible as Trinitarian. Well, having said that, our passage then goes on to tell us exactly what virtues the Spirit will give to Jesus, enable him to perform. Look at verse 2. He'll have the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now, looking here, we've got three groups of two related virtues. All right, three groups, two related virtues, all of which the Spirit's going to enable the Messiah to perform. So first, the Spirit's going to give the Messiah wisdom and understanding. Now, knowing what you know about Jesus' life, was he characterized by wisdom and understanding? Absolutely. No one knew people's hearts like Jesus did. And listen to Luke 2.52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Next, it says the Spirit will endow him with counsel and might. Do we see Jesus modeling this in his life? Of course. Luke 24.19, Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And lastly, it says that the Spirit would endow the Messiah with knowledge and fear of the Lord. We see this constantly in his life and ministry. Think, for example, of Matthew eleven twenty-seven. 27. Jesus said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Very clearly, all of the virtues, all of the characteristics that the Messiah would have, endowed by the Spirit, Jesus modeled throughout his life and ministry. He was empowered by the Spirit like no other. I think the big lesson we should draw from these verses is the way in which Jesus is a king we should gladly follow. Jesus is a king we should gladly follow. You think about it, millions are vying for your allegiance today. You might not even notice this, but but millions are. And I'm not only talking about politicians, you know, presidents and congressmen, uh, but we're talking about internet influencers And advertisers and big Google companies, they're vying for your allegiance. Will you trust in me? Will you follow me? Will you bank your hopes on me and what I can provide? But realize none of these earthly leaders are endowed with the Spirit like Jesus is endowed with the Spirit, not even close. Jesus is the perfect leader, fully filled with the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He and he alone has these virtues, and therefore he is a ruler, a king we all should gladly follow. Another quick lesson I think we should learn here is how as we are conformed to the image of Christ, these virtues become our virtues. You understand that, don't you? That as we follow Jesus, we are being conformed to to the moral character of his human nature. So as we walk with Jesus... As we read his word, as we pray in his name, as we fellowship with his people, Jesus' Holy Spirit likely, likewise fills us. And as he fills our lives, more and more we are filled with the spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. I'd encourage you to pause and ask yourself, brothers and sisters, do you notice these virtues? bearing fruit in your life? Do you notice them uh, cropping up in your life? Do those that live with you notice these virtues cropping up in your life? Certainly not perfectly. Certainly not what we hope them to be. Certainly not what they will be in glory. But more and more is your life characterized by wisdom and understanding, by counsel and might, by knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That is evidence of the spirit at work in your life. So do you notice these and do others notice them? Well, there's one spirit-given virtue this passage seems to especially emphasize. It's said twice, at the end of verse 2 and at the beginning of verse 3. Look carefully. He'll be filled with the fear of the Lord. Then verse 3, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. It does seem as if this is stressing that when the Messiah comes, he'll especially be characterized by fear of the Lord. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? Well, this is an amazing concept. We actually talked about it a good bit in our recent Sunday School Lessons through the book of Proverbs. But when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, this is not talking about some sort of creepy terror that you might have of uh, zombies or or, uh, vampires or something like that. No, this is talking about that sort of holy reverence you have towards something that you know could utterly blow you apart if necessary, uh, but at the same time is extraordinarily helpful. Illustrations of this have been used before, like uh, the, the respect that you would have towards something like a chainsaw. You know what a chainsaw can do, but you also don't want to fool around with a chainsaw when you're drunk. Understand what I'm saying? So also, the fear of the Lord is something like that. Uh, The Lord is my father, but this Lord created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. Uh, This Lord poured out wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. And, And yes, he is my loving heavenly father, but at the same time, he's not a God that I want to toy with. The fear of the Lord in Scripture is to have this holy reverence, really this overwhelming awe. He is God. I am not. I am nothing but animated dust and ashes. And if he wanted to, he could cause me to cease to exist with a thought. Are you getting what I mean by fear of the Lord? Edward J. Young, I thought he had a good quote on the fear of the Lord in his commentary on Isaiah. He writes this, The fear of the Lord is the heart and core of biblical religion. It involves a recognition of the absolute holiness of God. It is a fear based upon the recognition of that holiness and coupled with full reverence before him. Such a holy fear has been manifested in the attitude of the angels surrounding the throne of the Lord. Remember the holy, holy, holy passage? The phrase itself is the practical equivalent of true spirituality and devotion. True religion is a reverent and godly fear, for it recognizes that the creature is but dust before the holy creator, and it prostrates itself in his presence, expressing itself in reverential awe. So this is something a Messiah will be characterized by. Do we see this in the Lord Jesus? Was his life characterized by fear of the Lord? I believe it was. You read any of the Gospels, and Jesus walked with perfect reverence before his Father. He always respected and honored his Father. He said his delight was to do the Father's will. But more than that, contemplate what took place in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before Jesus' crucifixion. Luke twenty two forty one. 41, Jesus knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. If that's not fear of the Lord. I don't know what is. And I think one of the lessons we should draw from this is this. If Jesus feared the Lord, how much more should we I mean, if Jesus, the pure, holy, spotless Son of God, if he feared the Lord, how much more should we? Brothers and sisters, I'd encourage you to do everything that you can to cultivate your fear of the Lord. View this as a a treasure. If you've got it, value it more than gold and silver. If you don't have it, seek it and pray for it. Literally pray for it because the scriptures teach that this is not something that we can just whoop up on our own. This is something we can't just create out of thin air. It's a gift that God gives. So pray, Lord, I don't fear you like I should. When I hear about you, when I sing about you, it seems so flat and dull. Please work in my heart by your spirit and cause me to fear you as I should. Because again, if you're not given this fear, you can't just whoop it up on your own self-determination. Quickly, moving on. Notice with me next, the coming king's righteous rule. We'll see that in 3b and 4a and 5, the coming king's righteous rule. Now look at verse 3. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. A couple quick observations. First, you'll notice the way in which when the Messiah comes, he'll have this sort of supernatural perception. Isaiah is describing a judge who can do things that ordinary humans cannot do. Like it says in verse 3, he'll not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Now, you think about it, ordinary human judges, they can't not do this. In ordinary human judges, they can only judge by what their eyes see and what their ears hear, and that's not a bad thing. You know, we're, we're human, and we can't read minds, we can't read hearts, uh, and this is why sometimes judges make mistakes. They're just going on the externals of what we can see and hear. But clearly, when the Messiah comes, he's going to have the ability to look into people's hearts, to know the thoughts and intents of their hearts, and to judge accordingly. Now, obviously, Jesus did this all throughout his ministry. Just think of all those occasions when Jesus read somebody's thoughts and responded accordingly. Just to give you one example, Luke 6-7. The scribes and the Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Stretch out your hand. You really get that. This will either comfort you or strike you with terror, that Jesus can read your heart. Why would it comfort me? Well, it comforts me this way. Jesus knows the deep, dark things that I wouldn't share with anybody. I mean, just crazy wild thoughts that, you know, would shock people if, if y'all knew them. Jesus knows them through and through, and yet he loves me nonetheless because I am righteous in him. And that's such a comfort that somebody knows me inside and out, thoroughly, uh, but still loves me. That comforts me. This ought to terrify those of you who don't know Jesus. And here's the reason why. Jesus, again, knows all your deep, dark secrets, those things that you would never share with anybody, those things if you shared with your spouse, they'd be utterly horrified. And yet you're not currently protected by Jesus' righteousness. And when you stand before Jesus on that judgment day, you will give an account for and be judged for all of those thoughts. Again, you let that sink in, that will terrify you. So for the Christian, this is a comfort, but for the non-Christian, this is a terror. Something else I want us to talk about here. Notice who it is that the Messiah will defend in verse 4. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now, there is a tradition within some quarters of Christendom that by merely being financially poor, you somehow get on God's good side. Um, I'm sure you've encountered this before, that just God takes the side of every poor person, regardless of who they are, regardless of how they got poor. uh, Just because they're financially impoverished, God takes their side. I challenge you to think through, is that what the Bible actually teaches? And a passage like this, I think, shows the way in which that's not what the Bible actually teaches. If you look at the term poor here, I think we've got much reason to believe that this is talking about those humbled over their sins, not those financially impoverished. Why is that? Well, let me give you three quick reasons. First, you think about the rest of the Bible. In the rest of the Bible, God does not automatically take the side of the poor purely because they're poor. Go to, say, 2 Thessalonians, those who will not work shall not eat. You look at the Proverbs, where it commended to work hard, to wisely steward our money, to financially plan. Additionally, there are a lot of rich people in Scripture who God took their side of, and, and he didn't hold their riches against them. Think of Noah, Abraham, Job, Cornelius, so forth. Simply being financially poor does not necessarily mean God is on your side, and financially rich does not mean God's against you. There must be something deeper going on. I think we get a key from Jesus' ministry. When we turn to Jesus' ministry, of course he has a concern for the poor and often helps the poor, but there's again something deeper going on and it's not necessarily how thick their checkbook was, but did they have saving faith in him? There are individuals in Jesus' ministry like Nicodemus or Zacchaeus or Joseph of Arimathea who were financially wealthy and yet were clearly on Jesus' side. Well, At the same time, there are other occasions where he would pass by poor people because they lacked faith. One last reason why I think this passage is clearly talking about those humbled, those who are spiritually poor. Look at the parallelism in verse 4. It says, With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. In context, it seems as if the meek is defining who the poor are. And based on what you know of the Bible, meekness, that's not really a financial category, but a spiritual category. It's not the financially impoverished that Jesus will defend, but those who are humbled over their sins. You follow me? So this is what this passage is saying. When the Messiah comes, he will defend the poor, those who have been humbled for their sins, broken for their sins. They recognize that in me dwells no good thing, that even my, righteous, my righteousnesses are as filthy rags in God's sight and yet I cast myself on you. If you're among those poor, Jesus will defend you. So the question I must impress upon you now is, are you among these spiritually poor? Have you come to the realization that you are a deeply, deeply sinful person and that you could never do anything in a million years to compensate for the sinful things you've already done? Have you come to realize that in your heart dwells no good thing, that even your best righteousnesses are still filthy rags, I'm going to read a book by John Bunyan, and he said something very profound. He said, even my best prayers on my best day include enough sin to damn the entire world. If you don't get that, I don't know if you really fathom what it means to be among the spiritually poor who Jesus will save. So do you experience this? Do you know this? Are you those poor that Jesus saves? Well, there's one last thing I want you to notice quickly from these verses, and that's the coming king's righteous judgment. It's in verse 4b, the coming king's righteous judgment. Look at verse 4b. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Pause there. Now many see these words as somehow describing Jesus' first coming. When he comes, he's going to maybe confront the Pharisees with his teaching. Now it's true that he did that, But as I read this passage, I think this is actually looking forward to his second coming, when he will come in judgment. I mean, the echoes and the phraseology here is so typical of what is used in Scripture to describe Jesus' second coming. Listen to, say, Revelation 19. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Or even clearer, 2 Thessalonians 1.7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So let me explain what I think is going on here in Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11:1 1 through 4a, that's talking about Jesus' first coming when he was born as a baby in Bethlehem. He's going to be that Messiah, descended from David, anointed by the Holy Spirit, doing God's will, offering mercy to the poor. That's his first coming. But then there's a jump when we get to verse 4b, thousands of years into the future, to Jesus' second coming. When he comes, he will not return as a tender little baby in a manger, but as a victorious warlord to slay the unrepentant in his wrath. So what this means is that there's this window of more than 2,000 years between verse 4a and 4b. I realize this is confusing, but actually the prophets do this all the time. They kind of smush together Jesus' first coming and second coming. So we're living in this window of opportunity right now between 4A and 4B. This is a window of opportunity where we're called upon to recognize our poverty, to appeal to Jesus for mercy, to be reconciled to our Creator. That's this window of opportunity. And yet, I hope you understand that one day that window will close. One day the opportunity will come to an end. Jesus will return, and then he will destroy all of those who have not turned to him for forgiveness. So in conclusion, the only application from all of this is this. Turn to Jesus now. I hope you get that. Turn to Jesus now. Recognize Jesus for who he is, the promised messianic king, endowed by God's spirit, sent to rule the entire world. Recognize your spiritual poverty. that you are a sinner, a rebel against God, who's broken God's laws thousands of times. And if you had to earn your way to heaven, you would have dropped into hell a long time ago. And yet recognize that Jesus gladly saves those who are poor in spirit, those who are humbled by their sins, and he will gladly receive them as their Lord and Savior if they come to him in faith. So come to Jesus today. Embrace him now. He will save you, and when you stand before him, he will not treat you as an enemy, but as a beloved child. Come to Jesus today. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on anything that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, please talk to me after the service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But right now, humble yourself, embrace King Jesus, and right now be made right with God. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, thank you for the privilege and the joy of studying your word. Please work in our hearts that we would delight in, rely on the Lord Jesus and find our hope in Him. Lord, as we get into this Christmas season with all the tinsel and reindeer and Santa Claus, please guard us, guard our hearts, Lord, from being led astray. Help us, O Lord, to fix our eyes on Jesus, to find our delight and our joy in Him. And help us, Lord, especially as a congregation, to celebrate the true meaning of Christmas. Jesus we pray. Amen.